Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. I am your host, Michael Delaware, and today I'm going to explore the subject of the agricultural pioneers. These are the pioneers that moved into Southwest Michigan and began farming. What did they experience? In a book called A History of Calhoun County, there is an article written by a man named J.H. Brown, and it's called Calhoun County Agriculture. And he describes in a fair amount of detail of what the early pioneer farmers experienced. Agriculture in its most primitive form was practiced by the first and early settlers in Calhoun County. Even those sturdy pioneers who came here from the eastern states had to do their farming largely by means of the axe, spade, and grub hoe. In their eastern homes, they enjoyed what they called conveniences and even luxuries. They used oxen and horses and could plow fields of moderate size without constantly meeting stumps and grubs in the furrow. But cultural methods in the early days were extremely crude in this new country. Very few of the old pioneers are now living. The present generation has no adequate conception of the extreme hardships endured by the majority of the first settlers in southern Michigan. It is doubtful if hundreds and thousands of the young men and women now enjoying life on the improved farms of this county could make a living or even keep body and soul together could they be transported back to the times and conditions that existed here when the first settlers came into the wilderness. And even the spade, axe, and grub hoe were crude and more or less awkward to handle compared with the fine tools of the present day. The first farmers found plenty of need of the blacksmith, and a few of those old country shops are still left in the form of tumbled-down shacks here and there by the roadside. The first settlers generally were farmers from necessity. No matter what their previous vocation from where they came from in New York State or anywhere in the East, the first thing needful was to get something to eat. Some brought along sufficient food to last for a spell of greater or lesser duration, but the majority quickly looked for a place to scratch dirt and put in a few seeds. And the much-desired scratching places or patches were mighty few and far between. In those days, the saying, root hog or die was literally adopted and practiced by everybody who amounted to anything. So that kind of gives you some insight into the mindset of the early pioneers when they got here and what the terrain was like. It was very different from what they were used to experiencing on the east coast. Here they had a lot more shrubs and stumps to remove and a lot more trees and they even had to deal with marshland and swamp and it was quite a different uh, terrain than they were accustomed to. So he goes on to further describe that there were some places in Calhoun County where the timber had been burned and spots of more or less prairie where settlers found it less difficult to prepare seed and grow. Especially they grew wheat and potatoes and a limited variety of garden sass. The oak openings, which were areas between the trees that were more or less cleared lands, oftentimes by the Native Americans, but sometimes they were naturally occurring. And the oak openings were generally preferred as the soil was usually a heavy loam and easier to break up. But he goes on to say also that it was a wonder that so many pioneers chose the land that was stony and hilly 
and heavily timbered as opposed to the areas of open soil. And he also describes that a lot of the early settlers came home, set up a cabin or temporary homestead, and then went back east and returned with large numbers of their family to help them. That's kind of a common theme that you hear when you're studying some of the the history of a lot of the families. And he described that the uh, logs had been cut and were sometimes rolled down hillsides. And if any neighbors were within a few miles, the plan was to reach out to them and help out and then, of course, return the favor for when they needed it. The shanty raising was frequently less than a day's work. The ends of the logs were notched enough so that the cracks could be reduced to a minimum, and these were usually plastered with mud between the gaps to stop most of the rain and the wind. The roof was very crude, covered with shakes, and the floor made up of broad, flat pieces of timber riven from the central position of logs and dressed down by a broad axe in ands. The Punchian floor and shake roof were very common in the cabins of this country for years after the first settlers came. Bernice Bryant Lowe has a chapter in her book, Tales of Battle Creek, and that chapter is called What They Found. And she describes that the earlier settlers that arrived on the Gogwak Prairie, one of the earliest ones, was said to have built a cabin, returned to New York State for the winter, and then brought his family in returning the following spring. But the cabin was gone, burned. What he did not know was that the Indians burned off the prairie each spring. If they were hungry and and needed small game for survival, they burned it off one or two times a year, so that the sighting of prey was easier. Thereafter, the settlers learned to create a firebreak or plowed ground around their homes and planted fields until there was enough neighbors whose cultivation protected the whole prairie. And if you're from Battle Creek, it's said that you could actually see across the Gogwak Prairie from the corner, let's say the corner of Helmer Road and Territorial, with the airport behind you, you could see all the way to Gogwak Lake. There was no houses, there's nothing in the way. It was all prairie. That's how big the Gogwak Prairie was. So when the settlers came in here, the soil was rich. The Indians had burned off the prairie sometimes twice a year to keep it clear for game and the soil was very rich and oftentimes when they would start plowing this and digging into it they'd find that the the grass roots were matted six to eight feet deep these roots had gradually brought trace elements from very deep to stimulate the growth of the grasses so the prairies offered the richest soil because of the constant burning and the returning of the soil that was naturally done by that process so that's always interesting to look at now going back to this article by J.H. Brown the biggest job the farmer had was to cut down the trees enough to make a clearing it was hard work and many of the logs were rolled together and burned as soon as they were seasoned out There was no use for the timber, and it was destroyed on every farm and claim as fast as the trees could be cut up and piled in big heaps with the smaller limbs and brush. And then he describes that he remembered seeing hundreds of these piles in every direction all over the area. And he described that the the plowed ground was very rough, and it was slow and tedious work, and the stumps and grubs were deep-rooted and and the farmer struggled all day long from sunup to sundown to break through the land and clear it for farming. The strongest pioneer farmer was mightily glad when night came as he could 
lay down and rest for a few hours. Among the first crops that followed was wheat, oak, corn, buckwheat, and potatoes, and they were grown in almost every clearing and a small garden patch near the house furnished a good living for the pioneer farmer, who was the hustler. And he makes an interesting description of the women of the pioneer period. He says, very often the settler's wife did more work indoors and out and was the mainstay of the family, no matter how many babies came into the house. In the early days, it was a common thing to see the woman folk doing the hardest work of clearing up the land and breaking up the soil. They took an active part in cultivating the growing crops, the laborious work being done mostly with a crude and heavy hoe or pickaxe. The farmer's wife was frequently adept in handling the scythe and the grain cradle. There were plenty of grub roots and stumps in the way, and it was very slow work going over every acre of ground. He says, in fact, it would have been impossible for the pioneer to have succeeded in conquering the wilderness of Calhoun County had it not been for the women folk. So that's a tribute to the early pioneer women who are among the most determined sort of people to carve out a life out there in the wilderness. He also talks about some of the roads that were initially carved between the farms. He said that each township later on was divided into road beats and put in charge of each beat a pathmaster. Road beds were made by plowing a back furrow from each side into the middle of the road. From one to a dozen teams would plow all day in a mile or a half mile strip and the rest of the tracks sometimes would be left high and narrow. Each wagon, plow, and man would count a day's work, and all present-day labor would occasionally have committee meetings under the shade of a tree or near fences on the corner of somebody's property. So essentially, the farmers would take responsibility for a, a mile or a half-mile section of the road, and they would take their time out of their day of, of plowing the fields to plow down the roads and level it and go back over and over and over again to make it more durable so that they could drive wagons and carts on it. And each neighboring farmer would do their part in maintaining a section of the road. And they divided the sections of the county up into road beats to make this possible. Now, I did a video on my YouTube channel called The Golden Harvest. And I'll put a link to that in the description of this podcast episode. But I covered a description of a period of time where there was a wheat harvest bonanza that happened. And it lasted for several years here in Calhoun County, where there was an abundant bumper crop of wheat that lasted for several years. And it created a lot of prosperity within the county. And there were times when there were wagons upon wagons upon wagons lined up downtown to take their wheat to the grain mill. It would go that way all day long uh, during a harvest time. And he makes mentions of that period in this article, which adds a new insight into that. And he describes some of the bartering and the the process of how that happened between the farmers and the station operators that ran the elevators. He says the farmers of Calhoun County had plenty of excitement in selling wheat in Battle Creek, Marshall, and Albion, and other points where there was a railroad station and elevator. Wheat took up big jumps in prices and reached $3 and over in certain areas A telegram would sometimes reach a wheat buyer after he'd opened a bag and inspected a handful and was getting ready to bid the farmer. The farmer would keep an eye opened all the time 
and could generally tell how the price was going by watching the buyer as he glanced over the telegram. Before the bag of wheat was tied and laid down on the road, the owner might be offered 5 to 15 cents per bushel, more than the first bid made by the bag that was lifted on the end. So these were strenuous days for the farmer of this county. And he says many pages of history might be devoted to the experiences of the pioneer farmers and the street wheat buyers. There were all sorts of tricks in vogue and tried by a few on both sides of the transaction. Short weights were claimed by the farmer frequently and occasionally the elevator man would find a heavy stone rolling in the hopper. So both were trying to underweigh, like the, the wheat buyers were trying to underweigh the amount of wheat so they would get more, and the farmers were trying to do little tricks to make the wheat weigh a little bit more so they get a little bit more cash. Later on, farmers began buying scales and then weighed the wheat at home. This was a most desirable plan as it soon stopped much of the complaint regarding short weights. But some farmers became tired of weighing all the wheat at home and then so they just uh, gave up and just went to town and had it weighed there and after a while gave up on that whole process. The time when this was really going on, he says, was just before the Civil War and all the way to about 1880. After 1880, the wheat production in the area began to go into decline because they started to lose ground to other larger towns outside of the area, producing more wheat as expansion headed west. And the soil was a little bit better as the pioneers moved west. So different types of crops were introduced into the area, and the area switched over to what we know it is today as being corn and soybean and a whole lot of other crops. He mentioned that over a 50-year period, the landscape changed to fine farms and homes and barns that could be seen in a great majority of the fields around the area along every highway. And he said at this time of, of the writing of the article that today farmers ride into the city with their horses and carriages or even automobiles. And it's difficult to distinguish them from the city businessmen on the street. Their wives and children dress as well and make as fully good an appearance as any city lady. The sons and daughters on the farms of Calhoun County are securing a better education in the schools and colleges than the young people in the city. In the years to come, the farmer and his family will continue to rank well with the city resident, and both classes will intermingle in a social as well as a business way more than ever before. And that's how he closed out that article that he wrote. There's a lot of detail in it about the, the struggles of the early farmers, but it was kind of a fascinating period of time, and I'm always drawn to it because when you drive anywhere in Calhoun County, you see all these massive fields of agricultural and farming of today and they're all clear and it just you see these rows of planting in the spring and then fields of corn and soy and whatever else they're planting and you just have to really let your imagination stretch to remember that all of that was rocky terrain and trees and stumps and some of it was even swampland when the early pioneer settlers arrived and the first people to tackle that soil to make it into fields that could be plowed later by larger machinery as that was 
introduced and invented. They did that by hand and they did it by oxen and not everybody could afford oxen and mules and they'd have to borrow a neighbors. So a lot of it was every acre was hard toil to clear and level. That's even before they could begin to plant. So it's just kind of a very interesting time and it, and it kind of lends insight into the hardened type of people that were here and made it the land possible to be cultivated. Some of the early farmers that arrived in Battle Creek was Joseph Merritt, and among them also was Moses Hall, and many of these men bought land from Sands McCamley. The Merritt brothers were one of the early pioneers that bought a lot of the land that now surrounds the area of the YMCA and that whole area of uh, all the way up to Orchard Park. That was all the Merritt brothers' land up in that area in Battle Creek. A lot of the north side was initially settled by them, and there was two or three brothers that were part of that family. And then there was also Jonathan Hart that was a member of that family as well. Well, he was married to one of the Merritt um, sisters or something like that. So he established one of the early mills in downtown uh, along the mill race. And that was uh, one of the first mills that came into production. And among some of the early planting that happened here in Battle Creek was also the fruit trees and orchards. And Bernice Bryant Lowe talks about, although the legendary Johnny Appleseed, who died in 1845, is said to have brought his gift of seed to Michigan, it seems he had not come as far north as Calhoun County. An undated newspaper clipping states that the apple trees were sent here in 1835. The native fruits were doubtless cultivated to some extent by the energetic, and the wild plums, blackberries, and dewberries, and elderberries made excellent puddings and pies when the supplementary makings were available. Before North Washington Avenue was cut through, a huge bed of wild strawberries lay between today's Champion Street and Manchester Streets. In New York State, such advances had been made to develop hardy fruits, and that by the 1850s, catalogs of New York nurseries offered 500 different varieties of fruit trees. These included berries, much preferred in Michigan, and the, tr the other trees were cherries, plums, pears, as they could be also dried or made into brandy, and they also included uh, peaches and apples. So it's likely that in other parts of Michigan, where there are a lot of orchards of cherry trees and other types of fruit trees and apple trees, many of these early trees may have come from that period of time in New York when they were imported here. And some of the first orchards can be remembered in some of the street names on the north side of Battle Creek. There's Orchard Avenue and Orchard Street, for example. And one of the first orchards that was planted in the area was said to have been planted on the parcel of land just north of Gogwak Lake. So as more and more settlers moved into the area, farming became a little bit more easier as time went on because you had more labor available. You had more people to help you to raise a cabin or to raise a barn or build a house. And then there were also the development of lumber mills and harvesting any kind of a crop became a lot easier. And of course, as time went on, there was the thresher business that was developed here in Battle Creek much later as we approach just before the Civil War, and those had a major expansion and major industrial development post-Civil War in the era of Reconstruction, as we say a big agricultural change following the Civil War. 
partly due to the abolition of slavery in the South. They were suddenly um, without the labor force that they had grown accustomed to. But the move was going towards more automation anyways, even before the Civil War, where one solitary farmer in the North could plow a whole field by himself with a thresher attached to some a team of horses. And that was starting to take notice, and that was also part of the the impatience that the North had with the Southerners clinging to the horrible solution of slavery as a form of agricultural labor force. So there's a lot to look at when you look at this period of time when the cultivation and development of land and agriculture, and it's a very important part of pioneer history. The early crops, the early people, the hardiness of the people here in Michigan that made it possible, and also the changes and advancements that happened over time to improve it and bring about more of a civilization in the area. So it's just a very fascinating part of history to look at, and it's definitely a very integral part of the pioneer history because it represents the food source that was created from the labors of so many. And it's just a very uh, fascinating and interesting time. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode as we took a look at the agricultural pioneer. If you'd like to find out more about me, you can check out my website at michaeldelaware.com. If you have a suggestion about a chapter of Southwest Michigan history that you'd like me to explore and investigate, be sure to reach out to me on the contact form on that website. I'd be happy to hear from you. And I do have a lot of people that do that, and I do appreciate um, the feedback that I get on not only my podcast, but also my YouTube channel. And if you'd like to support the work that I'm doing here, I have some links on my uh, website page that you can uh, utilize. There's ways that you can make a direct donation to the work that I'm doing, as well as uh, buying some merchandise on my merchandise store. So I hope that you will join me next time as we take another adventure into a chapter of history in Southwest Michigan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>